A recent poll found blindness ranked fourth as the condition most Americans feared following AIDS, cancer, and Alzheimer's disease. But what if you found your sight slowly fading as you grew older, and with it goes your ability to drive, to do the job you've been trained to do your whole life, or even your ability to orient yourself in new or different environments? Well, that's what my guest and I will discuss on today's Fordham Conversations. Good morning. I'm Robin Shannon. Joining me by phone is Dr. Amy Horowitz with Fordham's Graduate School of Social Services. She's here to share what she's learned by studying depression in visually disabled seniors. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. So first off, I want to stress something you said in your research, that depression will not happen to everyone who begins to lose their vision as they grow older, correct? Absolutely. Right. So give me an example of the types of activities that can become more difficult for someone who's growing older and starting to lose their vision. It depends on what kind of eye disease is causing the vision loss, and I do want to stress that we're talking about vision impairments that are due to eye disease. This is not a normal part of aging. This is a disease-related process, so it's not everybody as they grow older will have a significant vision impairment. Most people will be able to correct their vision with glasses. Even cataracts can be taken care of fairly easily. So that we're talking about something that is not correctable by regular medical or surgical intervention. What kind of so, diseases are these? And those diseases are most common are macular degeneration, which affects the central vision. So the types of um, impairments that somebody would experience would be difficulty reading, difficulty looking straight ahead and recognizing people's faces. Driving is very much affected by macular degeneration. People don't ever get totally blind, typically. And another disease would be diabetic retinopathy, which is obviously associated with diabetes and is characterized mostly by fluctuating vision and fuzzy vision, and also then glaucoma, which affects the peripheral vision. So that person will read and will be able to see your face, but will have trouble with mobility, be, you know, walking around because they won't be able to see out of their periphery. How does their everyday life change? Um, it can change very significantly because even though it is not as dramatic a disease, diseases as stroke or heart disease, it really has as significant as severe or if not more so functional implications because it really limits what you can do and how you can, you know, self-care. It really limits one's independence if you can't travel alone, if you can't cook in your own house, if you can't keep up with the news and go out with friends. And so it has a lot of implications. It also, I have to say, has a lot of psychological implications to a person. I mean, blindness is something that is just totally feared in our culture. It's always historically been associated with complete dependence. And I always like to say, if you look back at the Grimm's fairy tales, blindness is a theme throughout these fairy tales, which are very violent, and it's always punishment for sin, et cetera. So it, it has some psychological meaning in addition to the kind of physical implications. So somebody who maybe have difficulty walking because of arthritis is not going to have the same reaction as the person who has difficulty walking because of, of a vision problem. Now, when you mean a psychological reaction, Amy, are you talking about how society might look at somebody who becomes visually impaired or how they might see themselves? Actually, I'm talking about both because, remember, older people are part of society. They've grown up in the world we live in, and they've internalized a great many of the stereotypes about dependency associated with vision loss, which I 
again, want to stress it's not inevitable at all. There are many things that can be done, coping strategies, um, but they've internalized these feelings, and so have their families. So there's a great fear associated with loss of vision, a great fear for somebody's safety, for their own safety, a feeling of vulnerability on the street if you can't see oncoming traffic very well, and if you can't see a curb when it comes, some of the diseases affect depth perception. So there's a a great deal of fear and uncertainty involved. And it's also a great deal of acceptance, because remember people are, again, they've lived in the society, they've grown up with the same misunderstandings, where so many people think, oh, I'm old, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old, I'm old, I can't see. That's to be expected. So, Amy, would someone who is more accepting of vision loss as they grow older more susceptible to depression because they sort of see it like it's just a natural part of life, or would they be more susceptible to depression? My feeling is they're more acceptable to depression, mm-hmm. even though they will associate it with aging it doesn't mean that they accept it as part of aging. And in effect, there's a ho- in a sense, there's a hopelessness that's associated with it. I think that'll change in coming generations as people are more aware of health and more aggressive about seeking medical care. But unfortunately, a lot of the doctors themselves aren't proactive in referring people out to what we know are vision rehabilitation services that can help them really function better. So many people don't seek any help in learning to function, to compensate for the vision loss, to function differently, to use devices that can help them. In later life, in all ages, there's a really strong interrelationship between depression and disability. And it's almost like an inevitable cycle, spiral of dependency, and where we know that Disability is a, is a strong predictor of depression, of poor mental health outcomes, but depression is also a strong indicator of disability. Um, you lose the motivation, you lose the desire to function better. So, you know, you have this cycle that goes from disability leading to depression, depression leading to greater disability, and it's really important to intervene in that cycle. And Amy, when you say older adults, what age are you referring to? Well, we typically talk about older adults at 65 and older, but when you're talking about diseases like glaucoma and macular, you're really talking about even older, older adults. Um, So that a lot of the people we study, when we just do it based on a disease, our, our average age in our samples are often 80. Not that they can't be an earlier onset at age 60 or 65, but they tend to be in later old age. But your particular research looked at 80-year-olds. Well, no, we selected from 65-year-olds and older, but we end up with 80-year-olds because those are the people that tend to have the vision impairments. Now, depression is sort of a broad term, and we've mentioned it a few times. How did your research define depression? That's a really very good question. There's two primary classifications. One, you have depressive disorders. Those are diagnosed disorders that meet criteria, specific criteria for a diagnosed depressive disorder, such as major depression, minor depression, dysthymia. There are certain criteria in terms of number of symptoms as well as length of time one experiences it. Then you have what we often call and what is is most often studied is what we call either a subthreshold depression or clinically significant depressive symptomology. And so those are depressive states that doesn't meet the criteria for a diagnosed condition, but 
what we find in research by so many people is that the consequences of subthreshold depression, which is significant symptomology, can be just as severe as having a major depressive episode. Can you give me an example of the different types of depression? Like break it down to me what it would look like from the outside looking in. The basis is really symptomology, a number of symptoms. Diagnosis of major depression is is having either um, depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure for a minimum of two weeks plus four or five other symptoms um, within the array, which is loss, um, sleep disturbances, appetite disturbances, suicidal thoughts or ideation, agitation. And for a major depression, it has to go on for a minimum of two weeks and disrupt uh, uh, everyday functioning. Meaning um, that they don't have the motivation to work or they're agitated very easily right. or they're thinking about suicide or, or, or for lack of a better word, can't function normally. Right. It interferes with functioning, yes, mm-hmm. definitely. It might be the person who stays in bed. It might be the person who's always late or, you know, who can't get themselves moving. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, a subclinical depression has very similar symptoms, but just not as many. So you can have uh, the same symptoms, but they don't rise to the criteria. They may not, you may not have, you ha- for a major depression, you have to have a depressed mood or loss of interest. Adidonia is called loss of interest or pleasure in normal activities. You don't necessarily have to have one of those conditions for a subclinical, but you usually have at least two or three of the symptoms. And which one of those did your research use or consider depression for your study? We usually use a symptomology scale Mm -hmm. that looks at a basic level of, there are scales that have been developed, like the Center for Epidemiological Studies, the Patient Health Questionnaire, et cetera, that will give you a cut to look at probable. um, So what were some of the questions you might have asked somebody to find Uh, out if they were depressed? The same type of questions. Mm -hmm. You know, over the last two weeks, how often have you felt sad? How often have you had problems? with eating, either eating too little or eating too less, how often has your sleep been disturbed? It's the same questions. It's just a matter of degree. Okay. But what we find is even those who don't meet criteria for a major depressive diagnosis are still having the consequences of that. There's still those who are functioning worse, who have poorer relationships, who have um, greater disability, have all the greater mortality, greater hospitalization, more, all of the consequences that are associated with depression. Now, getting back to your research, what is the most important, I guess, risk factor for higher levels of depression? Obviously, we find greater disability is associated with greater depression. Also, certain poor coping strategies, if you want to talk about certain coping strategies that are not successful and that's associated with higher depression, such as avoidance or, you know, lack of dealing with the problems, trying, you know, it's sort of dealing with it in emotional ways, such as getting angry, yelling, relying on alcohol or drugs. Also, social support is really key really key in terms of being able to act as a buffer towards depression. So people who have strong social support systems who feel they can rely on people are much less likely. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon speaking with Dr. Amy Horowitz with Fordham's Graduate School of Social Services. We're discussing her research on depression among visually disabled seniors. So, Amy, is there a way to predict who's more prone to getting depressed? 
Well, if we're talking about older people who get depressed following a disability like a vision loss, or um, it seems self-evident, but one of the strongest predictors is their past history. So if people have had a past history of depression, they're much more likely to experiencing a new episode when there's a trigger. Some other negative event in their life often will predict the onset of the depression. And again, probably the strongest is the two strongest predictors are functional disability. What I mean by that is not so much having the disease, but the effect the disease has. So it's not so much you get a diagnosis and you go in and you say, I have macular degeneration. But it's when there are implications that if the disease affects your daily life. So the more it interferes with the things that you want to do, the things that you cannot longer do, that you're disabled, that will put somebody at greater risk of depression. Okay. Absolutely. And the feeling that there isn't somebody that they can depend on. So having someone to depend on and being able to function as you have in the past if those two things are not necessarily in the picture, then that can lead to someone being more prone to getting depressed. Exactly. So does the relationship between vision impairment and depression vary among ethnic groups? Did your researcher look at that? Um, unfortunately, and I, and, and I know people that are doing research on this now, we did not find a race difference, but a lot of that is because there are race disparities between different diseases. For example, macular degeneration is primarily a disease of Caucasians. Mm -hmm. Glaucoma is much more prevalent among African Americans as well as as well as diabetic retinopathy is much more prevalent among African Americans. And where we did our research, we primarily had people with macular. And in your research, you discussed something, and we talked a little bit about coping abilities that seniors go through as they begin to lose their vision. So in particular, you talk about problem-focused coping and emotional-focused coping. Mm -hmm. So can you explain these and sort of give me definitions? Problem-focused coping primarily is a very active, proactive way of coping, which is you identify a problem, you try to face it head-on and try to, for example, develop compensatory ways of, of doing the things that you like to do, still be able to do it. And in many ways, I have to say that there's, and this is an aside, the problem-solving sol therapy, which is a cognitive behavioral approach, really integrates this whole idea of problem-solving coping strategies and has proved very successful with people of all ages who experience either subclinical or depression. Oh, going back, mm -hmm. now emotional-focused, it's coping through... Emotional reactions. Rea yeah. It could be crying. It can be you know, using unhealthy health, health habits. It can be ranting against you know, the forces or the fates that be. But so, people use that as a coping strategy, and they're not that successful. I was going to say, is problem-focused coping more productive? It tends to be associated with better outcomes, yes. When we're talking about some of the ways depression affects visually impaired older adults, your research looked a lot at driving. So let's discuss some of the mental health consequences when older drivers with limited vision have to give up their keys. You know, help me understand what driving represents for some of these older people. Oh, absolutely. This is really a big issue now, um, as you can imagine. We started off looking at adaptation to late life vision loss. We moved very quickly because our early research saw high levels of depression, so we moved more specifically to focus on depression among this group. And then in studying depression, we 
found that one of the the two things that people really talked about when they talked about the distress that they were experiencing as a result of losing their vision were one losing the ability to read which is ubiquitous in terms of how it affects daily life. You can't read for pleasure. You can't get your news as easily. You can't go out to a restaurant with your friend and read the menu. You can't play cards. <laughs> you know, right. There are a lot of things that that affects. So on one hand, it was reading, and on the other hand, it was driving. The fact that they could no longer drive or that they were anticipating no longer driving and what that meant not only in terms of their ability to get from point A to point B and to do the things they needed to do, but that sense of losing their autonomy, losing their independence, losing the ability to to go to where they wanted and needed to do when they wanted and needed to do it. That was, if you compare it to the experience of a teenager getting their first license and what that means in terms of autonomy, and how exciting that is, it, you can look at the flip size of what happens when an older adult realizes they no longer can drive. And for some people, they are trapped. We are, do not live in a culture that provides alternative transportations. So for people, especially in the suburbs or who don't live in a major city, where um, it's really problematic in terms of what they can and cannot do and who they have to depend on. It's interesting, I was just speaking to people who are doing a similar study internationally and, and, and comparing five different cultures. We were talking about the fact that they may not find as big an impact giving up driving has for people in Italy or Germany, et cetera, because they have transportation systems. They're not a car-oriented society like we are. And if you take someone, let's say, who lives in Manhattan and they're losing their eyesight and they're losing their ability to read, then they won't be able to get around on the transportation system that is in place in Manhattan, for example. Exactly. But even we, we had people from Manhattan and from the boroughs in our study of driving. Uh, we did a fairly long longitudinal study of older people with vision problems who were driving and followed them over two years. And even for people who didn't drive a lot, it still had very, very important implications for them in terms of their self-value and how they perceive themselves as being independent human beings, even if they didn't need it to drive all the time. Right. Amy, people who have been visually impaired their whole life have a very different experience from someone who loses their vision later on in life. Can you speak to the difference and the challenges that might face one that the other won't face? It's so different, the idea of aging into disability versus aging with a disability. For example, with any disability, whether it's a vision loss or it's a mobility impairment, they're facing a whole array of other challenges. And it gets integrated in their life very early. But they have the challenges to face in terms of getting through school and getting a job. You know, one would never underestimate what is required under those circumstances, but there is a lifetime to adapt and, in a sense, integrate it into your identity. For example, someone who is getting older and losing their vision, they won't 
no Braille, for example. Oh, absolutely not. No, and 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 will not go to learn Braille because it wouldn't be. Um, it, it's something that is, is not easy to learn, and something that it just won't serve them well. And also, they won't be necessarily good at it. I mean, because once you're you're aging, you have to deal with a lot of other comorbidities, and some of it is less sensitivity to touch. So more likely to get information through audio means, you know, radio, tapes. There's so many options in terms of what's available on computers and voice output, et cetera. There's reading machines, the Kurzweil, which is, you know, you can put a printed page on it and it reads it out loud. There are so many assistive devices and other compensatory methods that are available, but people have to learn about them and be encouraged to use them. And I would think if you're a visually impaired older adult or becoming visually impaired and you already are suffering with depression, how can you motivate yourself to learn a new language? Very difficult. This is why you won't learn Braille. But how do you motivate yourself at all if you're not encouraged to do so? And I have to say that there's a network of services typically under the heading of low vision rehabilitation that include both clinical services where you go for an examination by usually an optometrist or an ophthalmologist who has special training in low vision, and what they'll do is they, you know, assess the remaining vision and they will prescribe optical devices. There are services that are available to help people do the things they want to do, but in different ways. So let's talk about those. Um, You said clinical services are available. You said rehab services are available. mm -hmm. Are there any others? There's mental health services. One, you can't ignore the emotional distress that goes along with losing a very central ability like vision so that the most successful programs, and like I said, they tend to fall under a large heading of low vision rehabilitation, the most successful programs deal with the person as a whole because you can do more, you feel better. You feel better, you'll do more. Are there any safe treatments for depressed, visually disabled seniors? Oh, absolutely. There are no different than from anybody else. Uh, There are antidepressive medications can be very successful. You have to be careful with older adults just because of what other medications they may be taking. But there's no reason to automatically discount medication. The problem is that, again, there's the older cohort now that is maybe afraid or against taking such medications. Uh, they tend not to see mental health professionals. What we found in our research is that, in fact, some percentage of people are, and they don't always know they're taking it. They tend to get prescribed by their cardiologist or their ophthalmologist or their primary care physician because they might mention they're feeling blue, and they get the prescription, and it's for their nerves, but they really don't understand that it's an antidepressive medication. Non-pharmacological approaches are also very helpful. I mentioned earlier problem-solving therapy, where the approach is very targeted. It's usually time-limited. It might be six to eight sessions where really what the focus is on teaching the person to identify problems, come up with a range of possible solutions to evaluate those solutions and to implement the solutions and then start the cycle again. It's an approach that teaches older people how to cope on their problems. Um, There are also um, many examples of self-management group therapies that sometimes integrate a problem-solving approach but also integrate an emotional support or peer support program, which has been very helpful. There's no reason any of these approaches for depression would not be appropriate 
Now, we touched a little on support. So what's more important as someone begins to lose their sight, support from friends or support from family? Typically, the family is the first line of defense. And so having a supportive family is extremely important. But we've also found that often family can be overprotective, especially with older visually impaired persons. And that is not a helping behavior. We've had reports from our clinicians at times that they would go into the home and try to, you know, with the intent of teaching the older wife how to use the stove again and how to safely use the stove when they can't really see the buttons, where the husband is standing in front of the stove and, no, you're not doing that. And because they're afraid, because they've integrated the same stereotypes about dependency and, and disability that's associated with vision loss and, and what the blind, in quotes, can't do. It's done often out of love and protection, but it's an overreaction, and sometimes that can be very damaging to the individual because the individual needs to regain a sense of competence in their everyday life. And autonomy also. And autonomy, absolutely. When you talk about friends, those also become very, very important. And just to share some of the findings that we're getting out of our, our driving research, one of the things we ask about is in terms of the conversations that they've had with family, friends, and doctors about their driving and whether anybody has suggested that they stop. Advice from family and from doctors really have very little effect on their eventual stopping two years later because we follow them over two years, but, but advice from friends did. So, so their so friends that, had more of an influence than family and even doctors. Yes. Why? They're not as threatened. And again, like family can be very overprotective where friends are, are peers. They understand usually their age peers. So what's the best thing families can do to help someone who is losing their sight as they're getting older and not for the family member to become like this overprotective person that's not going right. to help? To have legitimate and open conversations about what the fears are, I think sometimes it is important to enlist a physician in these discussions because he or she might come with a little bit more authority or believability. Um, but also there are very specific services. There's occupational therapists who specialize in doing driving assessments and getting an objective, you know, encouraging a person to do that. Because sometimes families may be afraid for no reason. I mean, older people, what we do find is that they just don't drive and then not drive. Most older people will self-regulate for a very long period of time before they give up driving. And what I mean by that is that they will themselves stop driving in the evening. They'll maybe stop driving on highways. They may only drive in their local area. So there are many self-regulatory behaviors that older people um, engage in before they stop driving totally. And this is something that they do as they recognize that they're not as secure in their driving abilities as they used to. I mean, there's an anxiety. And when people begin to feel anxiety themselves over driving, this is something that will be very important in, in making the decision and having open conversations and not being afraid and not being hiding it. But does that anxiety and the, then um, them weaning themselves off of driving, does that tend to lead them towards depression or does it steer them away from it? Hard to say. We originally hypothesized that somebody who had, who slowly weaned from driving would do better than somebody who would do better emotionally than somebody who, in a way, made an abrupt stop, but we haven't found any evidence of that. Okay. Amy, earlier you said that 
negative attitudes will eventually change when it comes to visually impaired older adults. What do you think it will take to see that type of change, to see a better attitude when it comes to whether feeling that I'm becoming visually impaired as I get older, but I'm not going to fall into the depression because I see myself differently or having a family member who's saying, I'm not going to look at you negatively in the way that society has in the past looked at people who are becoming visually impaired. Yeah. I think it's going to be part and parcel of the whole array of changes that are going around in how we approach aging and how we approach health care in this country. People as they age are much less likely to accept certain conditions, much more open to services like rehabilitation, much more open to using assistive devices. I think the attitude is, you know, much more wanting to maintain functioning. I think it's just with the baby boomers who are used to going for mental health, uh, who are more used to see, you know, going for mental health services, more used to um, being an aggressive health consumer. I think all of that is going to is going to um, have an impact on on how people who develop vision problems in later life react. I, I can see it in my among baby boomer colleagues who have no problem going for hearing aids. Um, you know, at 50 and 60, right? you know, where before people would just deny it and um, there would be more of a tendency saying, no, I don't need it and I don't want it. People are looking to function better and function longer now. Amy, your study stated that there's a reluctance to study, diagnose, and treat depression in seniors who become visually disabled. Why is that? is a stereotype that you cannot change after a certain age, and it's not as challenging for the practitioner. And people associated old, older people with disability, and, and even though we're talking about aging and disability, that is not the norm. That is not the norm at all. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Amy Horowitz, with Fordham's Graduate School of Social Services. I'd also like to thank my producer, Megan Connor. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.